0: turn to John 12. If you're not there yet, I'd like for you to join me there very much. We're going to stay right there in the last part of John 12 for the most part this morning. Last seven, last seven verses. I'm glad you're here. glad I'm here to be with you and we get to study together, to worship in various ways together this morning. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you again. Do hope you enjoy your time here. And more than that, we hope it's a blessing to you in some good way uh, jimmy will say more about this in a minute but we do have lunch prepared for you so if you're visiting with us today we welcome you to stay around after the closing amen and join a group of us of a group of our folks downstairs for lunch and I hope you'll plan to do that You'll we get to know you and you get to know a, a few of us a little bit better you know faith is an interesting thing it, it, you know <clears throat> people Everybody deals with this. I mean, I know not everybody's a believer. Uh, There's a a growing sense of secularism in America, in the West, you know, in the Western part of the world. Uh, More skepticism about God, the rise of the nuns, as we've talked about some before, the N-O-N-E-S, the rise of those who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. It's an interesting phenomenon. It's going to be fascinating to follow this trend in the next 20 years, 30 years. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago this book by James Emery White, who also wrote that book, *The Rise of the Nuns*. He wrote a book called uh, *Meet Generation Z*, which is an interesting study of faith among young people. Um, lots of folks in this room right now. It's an interesting thing to, to consider how you think about faith, how you think about God. You know what? How you, how you process things about religion. So it's an interesting interesting thing. How do we think about faith? and Where are you on that that spectrum? I don't assume that everybody in this room is a believer in the sense that you would identify as a believer in the God of the Bible, that you'd call yourself a Christian. But, But regardless, of course, we're glad everybody's here, and I'm glad we get to talk about things associated with faith. But I think everybody deals with this question, like, what is faith? And is there something worth believing in? Is there evidence for the existence of God? Is there evidence that this book that I'm preaching to you from this morning that we just sang about, that it's inspired? Is there evidence for that? We're not going to address all those questions this morning, but it's interesting that in our text, Jesus does address some of these very fundamental things about faith. I want to get the text before us again. By looking at it briefly, uh, in the end of John 12, last seven verses, starting in verse 44. Let's go ahead and read it. I'd love for you to follow along with me in your own Bible as I read it for you. John 12:44. And Jesus cried out and said, "Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. <clears throat> and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." John 12, 44 through 50. You know, there's this uh, thing about John. Let me talk to you about John for a minute. Near the end of the book, last couple of chapters of the book, John's going to say, I've written this to you. Jesus did so much more, so, so many more things. You know, he, he, even the world itself could not contain the books that'd be written if it, if it wrote about everything that, that Jesus did. But I have written these things to you so that. You remember this? Some of you do. So that you might believe. It's the Purpose of the book, John. <coughs> and, and, and as you go back through John, I want to I just kind of walk you through the first few chapters of this book so, so that you know what John's doing. John's gospel, stay with me for a second because I want you to see how this connects. John's gospel is broken down into a couple of sections. A couple of pretty big sections and you got John 1 this is not one of the sections this is a prologue John 1 whole chapter it starts out by introducing what John's going to do in the beginning was the word (coughs) the word was with God the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were created by him and without him was not anything created that was that was created and the word was made flesh down in verse 14 so John 1 John introduces, hey, he's talking to us about God, the creator, God who became a human being, John 1. Now, in John 2 through John 12, so 11 chapters, John, this is often called the book of signs, this book within a book. John 2 through John 12, a book of signs. There are seven of them. (coughs) In, um, In John's gospel, he does a lot of sevens. He does... The seven I ams. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep, you know, and so on. Seven I ams. But he also does seven signs. And those signs, you remember the first one? We studied this a while back. John 2, the first sign that Jesus did at Cana of Galilee, the wedding where he turned water into wine. That was the first one. I'm just going to walk through them very briefly. John 4, he healed the royal official's son in Capernaum. You may remember that one. He healed the paralytic at Bethesda in John 5. He fed the 5,000 in John 6. He walked on water also in John 6. He healed the blind man who had been blind since he was born in John 9. In John 11, notice... All right, notice the trajectory here from, the, from the, uh, turning water into wine at Cana, John 2, and then he goes all the way to John 11 with this great one. Remember this? Lazarus went to the home of Lazarus. He already knew Lazarus was dead, been dead for four days, goes to the house of Lazarus, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. That was like the culminating sign going from water into wine, which is impressive, but it's not as impressive as raising somebody who's been dead for four days, right? So, so, John 2 to John 11, there are seven, count them, seven signs pointing to Jesus' nature and identity. All right? So, when you get to John 12, you're, uh, you're, you're supposed to be reading the conclusion to that section of Jesus' ministry. He's done these seven signs. Seven in the Bible is a, is a number of completion, of perfection. It's, it's almost like John is, is helping us to see, though Jesus did so many more than that. John is, is helping us to see that these seven signs represent a complete testimony to who Jesus is. People ought to believe it. And yet, if you look in John 11, you'll notice, you may remember this, but after Jesus performed the resurrection of Lazarus, after he raised Lazarus from the grave... In John 11, starting in verse 47, some of the religious leaders got together and they said, this man's doing many signs, verse 47. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, so the religious leaders, and the culmination of this, this seventh sign, they come to the conviction that, no, not that we need to believe in him. Obviously, he's doing some pretty amazing things, but here's what we got to do. we got to stop this. Stuff. We've got to stop this. Everybody's going to believe in him if we keep on letting him do this, you know? So instead of coming to a point of faith, which the seven signs ought to, lead, ought to have led them to, they, 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 they say, uh, <clears throat> man, this, this is real stuff. Let's stop him. Does that make sense? Instead of saying, this is real stuff, let's believe in him. Uh, this, is, this seems to be real. Let's investigate this. This seems to be real. No, let's put it to an end because we're going to lose our positions of influence and prominence and financial advancement if we let this go on. That's how they they ended up. So John 12, last chapter in the book of seven signs, before it goes privately to the private interactions between Jesus and the the disciples in John 13, they're going to be in the upper room. Uh, Jesus washes his feet. They take... The Last Supper together, uh, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, Jesus goes out with them and, and prays in front of them. He uh, engages them in the Garden of Gethsemane. That, that's, that's coming. That's private. John 2 through John 12 is this public ministry of Jesus, seven signs culminating in a great resurrection that is followed by disbelief. And so Jesus stands up at this, on this last pivotal moment, this last chapter, if you will, of the public ministry of Jesus. And, and John's pretty emphatic here when he says, Jesus cried out. It's like Jesus got to the end of his public ministry and he looks out at the disbelief in the faces of all of these people who should have known better, who had seen some of this stuff. And he cries out. He yells. He shouts. And he says, If you believe in me, you believe not in me, but in him who sent me. And so he's drawing this to a conclusion by saying, I have done this, not so that you might believe in me, though of course that was part of it, but so that you might believe fully in the creator of the world, God, the one who sent me. Now they thought they believed in God, but if they truly believed in God, they would believe in the one that God sent. That's his point here. So if you're following along in the back of the bulletin, You've got got the first part of this where Jesus is emphasizing that he came to save the world. I love that that aspect of Jesus' ministry because I don't know what you think about Jesus. If you're coming at this from an outsider's perspective maybe to kind of investigating the claims of Jesus, I don't know what you think about him. Uh, Sometimes... Sometimes I hear people say, I've said this to you before, sometimes I hear people say, I don't believe in Christ, or I don't believe in Christianity. My initial response to that, at least in my mind, is, tell me about this Jesus you don't believe in, because not, I might not believe in that Jesus either. You know? Tell me about the Christianity you don't believe in, because I may not believe in that Christianity either. Sometimes people's perception of Jesus is not what Jesus actually was. Sometimes what people think about Christianity isn't what Christianity actually is, or ought to be. Sometimes what people believe about God isn't actually what God is or how he re- reveals himself to be. And so if, you, if you're thinking about Jesus, you need to understand. Read, I would encourage you, pick up, the, pick up the Gospel of John. Just read it straight through. Or read Mark's version of the life of Jesus. Luke's or Matthew. Or read all four of them. See who Jesus is. He came, he says here, he came to save I think the most convincing testimony of the identity of Jesus is actually reading about who he was and what he said and what he did. I think that convinces a lot of people. Sometimes we dance around that and we try to go at, at, the, at faith from a number of different apologetic kind of things. Well, here's the evidence for this, here's the evidence for that. I think, I think what we ought to do probably more of is, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Look, look, look at what he was like. He was so awesome. He was so... Neat and so winsome and so wonderful and so loving and compassionate, and strong. And John has gone through that in his gospel account in presenting this Jesus who, 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 who encountered the adulterous woman caught in the very act and her accusers wanted her to be killed. And Jesus reaches out to her with compassion and says, I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. The, the most beautiful balance of compassion with conviction and truth that you'll ever see. Jesus is attractive. He attracts people who want to see God. If you want to find God, you will find him in Christ. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. That's where this story has been going. He came to save. He was compassionate. He reached out to people in love, and he came to draw people to God. He didn't come to condemn. It could be that some people, I know it's the case with some people, could be the case with some of you, that you grew up in an environment where the image of Jesus that you have that was created early on in your life is one of, I don't know, harshness or, or, or condemnation or judgment or, or whatever, I don't, I don't know. Jesus says here, he came to save. That's who he was. That's who he is. He came to save. Now, <clears throat> I want to I move on to the next section of this because in order to teach what's true about Jesus, we've got to emphasize the full picture, right? So he came to save, but he says very clearly, <laughs> verse 48. Verse 47, I didn't come to judge, but to save. But then he says in verse 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. This is where it gets a little dicey for some of us in the West. Because we don't, our culture has taught us, and we've been immersed in this culture since the day we were born. Our culture's taught us that judgment is bad, all judgment is bad about the worst thing that you can do culturally speaking today is to make some sort of judgment about people's behavior or lifestyle, you know. That if you make these sorts of judgments about something being absolutely wrong in some sort of ethical way, then you are doing, committing the unpardonable sin almost, you know. So we, we've been immersed in that kind of environment. That's one thing that is particular, of particular interest to us if we're thinking about generations because our, our younger generations... Who are here this morning, some of them, they have especially been immersed in that kind of non judgmental kind of environment where it is wrong to say anything critical about anyone 's behavior Live and let live you know you 've got your own truth, just find your own truth and live your truth and, and don't don 't be pretending like you can be the judge of anyone else 's behavior and so any kind of any kind of um, absolute judgment coming is anathema to many of our American peers and yet Jesus talked about it. So if we're going to be faithful to the word that he gave us, we've got to emphasize his role in being savior, but also the fact that he spoke very clearly about sin and judgment and he does it here. Lots of passages. Let me don't, don't try to turn these now. Maybe you go, go back if you want to read more about them and uh, maybe go back later and read some of these. But Jesus talked a lot about this. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 in a text there, in a chapter there where he's talking a lot about the end. disciples have come to him. He says, when, you know, when's the, they said, when, when's the world going to end? He says, well, lots of stuff's going to happen first, but there's coming a day where he tells, tells three stories, essentially, in Matthew 25. He tells a story about a wedding and ten bridesmaids. Five were wise, five were foolish. The five foolish were unprepared for the coming of the bridegroom. They were unprepared for the end. It tells a story about uh, some, some uh, guys who were given some talents by their master, five, two, and one. Master went away, and then ultimately he came back. Five, five talent men had prepared. The two talent men had prepared. The one talent man hadn't. You know, the moral of that story is, master's going to come back. You need to be ready when he comes back. Then he tells this, which is not as much of a story. It is a story, but it's a little bit different. He says in verse 31 and going through the end of the chapter in verse 46, Jesus says, Son of man is going to come in his glory and all the holy angels are going to be with him. He's going to sit upon the throne of his glory. Before him shall be gathered all nations. He'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the ghost. To those on the right, he's going to say, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink and so on. To those on his left, he's going to say, Depart from me. Depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels because I was hungry and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink and so on. At the end of the text, in the end of Matthew 25, he says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. I mean, he's very clear here. There's this, there's this coming day when there's going to be this great separation, this great judgment. And we can't avoid that as, as Christians. And if, Especially, listen to me. If, you're, if you'd consider yourself of the younger generation, all right? Christians ought to be the most loving people in the world. We ought to be the most compassionate. We ought to be the most tolerant. We ought to love people no matter what they've done, who they are, what their behavior's like. We ought to love them. That's what Jesus did. But that does not mean we say some of what Jesus taught us and some of the, the, what the Bible says is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that. We cannot simply say, oh, yeah, I'm going to discard parts of the Bible that I don't like, that are kind of like not cool in American culture now. I can't do that. That's creating a God of our own making rather than following the God who is. You know, we can't, we can't do that. Jesus talks about judgment. we got to do something with that. We can't ignore it. I don't think. We can't simply say, well, I know he talked about that, but when we start doing that with the Bible, oh, that's, man, that's a dangerous place to go, you know. Uh, Paul, follower of Jesus, an apostle, one of his apostles, said, "We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive the things done in the body, whether it's good or bad." That's Second Corinthians five ten. One of the last pages of the Bible, Revelation twenty, starting in verse eleven, down through verse fifteen, when John is getting a glimpse of the future, <clears throat> he says, "He's got all these, sees all these visions, you know, of things to come." And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and the dead were judged out of the things that were written in the books according to their works. And it goes on, you know, and, and, and the book of life was open, and the books were open. and there's this sense of God looking at our lives and saying, you know what, I got this body of work here, how does it match up to what I led you to do and to believe and obey? There's a coming judgment, Jesus is hinting at that here, not hinting at it, he's talking about it, but he talks about it more fully elsewhere. That's Revelation 20, 11 through 15, John's vision of a, of a coming great separation, the, the small and great, the, the, the rich and powerful and the poor and insignificant from a worldly perspective, you know? It's coming a day. What Jesus does here in John 12 is he says, he's, he says, I've been doing a lot of stuff. I have done seven signs, so to speak, Increasing in intensity intensity, and culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus. And for so many people, it wasn't enough. They simply did not believe because they were hard of heart. What's the message for 21st century America now, for, for this audience today? The message, I think, is this. Jesus doesn't emphasize in our text here. He doesn't emphasize the miracles. He emphasizes The account of what Jesus has done, which speaks very well to us. Have you ever been in a place I have at times where I have asked God, I would like for you, Lord, within your will, to reveal yourself to me in some sort of clearer way. Like, you know, would you maybe maybe do something that's undeniable? You know, I've I've had those moments. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but I've I've had those moments. Within, if it's within your will, Lord, just, you know, do this thing. I think at the end of the day, though, if my heart is such that it's open to who God is, my heart will believe according to the record that I have, according to the record that we have. That's what Jesus says here. You're going to be judged by what I have said. He points to the scripture that would be, at this point, wasn't yet collected, but it was collected orally, would later be written down and confirmed. But he's pointing to what we would call scripture, the Bible. And we will be judged by the record of who Jesus was and what he said and what he did. It all goes back to that. Later on, maybe, uh, maybe 60 years or so after Jesus did what he did in John 12 in Second John one of the people who would have been present there John John would say in Second John there are these people coming along and they're saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh if you don't abide in persist in live in the doctrine of Christ you have no part with him what he's talking about there is if you don't believe the record of, of Jesus identity and miracles what he said what he did then you have no part with him. That's what he's saying here in John 12. So, let me, let me conclude by saying this. You know, if, you're, if you'd are consider yourself not a Christian this morning, all we would like for you to do is consider the evidence. Take, take up the Bible and read. I believe God, the Bible is true. God works through the Word. He works, the, calls, uh, Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit of God takes the Bible takes the word, the word of Christ, as his sword, and he pricks human hearts. He touches hearts. So open up the Bible and read and see what God does. Consider the evidence. If you're a believer who struggles, go back to Scripture the inspired record and testimony about who Jesus was and what he did. And I believe what God will do is he will take the word. If your heart is open, he will take the word and he will shape and mold and strengthen faith. We will be judged. I appreciate what Joel said a few minutes ago. Because judgment for a committed believer of Christ is not a scary thing. It's not a scary thing. It ought to be a matter of consolation that one of these days you and I are going to stand before God in judgment. We're going to hear those words that we've been longing to hear for a long time, and that is, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. day of judgment is not a scary thing if you're in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, it's a horrendously scary thing. So if you're not a Christian this morning, we we invite you to consider the claims of Jesus. We invite you to, if you've you've gotten to the point where you would say, I do believe in Jesus, we invite you to make that confession in a public way and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins based on your identification with Jesus, the risen, the resurrected Son of God who gave Himself for you. And you can confess Him and be baptized into Him this morning. We would be thrilled. If you're not a, if you are a a Christian, a, a child of God, but you... Maybe you need to come back to him today because your faith has led you to a point where you have denied him by your life and action. We invite you to come home to him today. Jesus is crystal clear in our text this morning. He puts the record of his life and teachings before us and he says, believe. We can trust and be drawn to him through that. Or we can say, I don't believe, I want to follow my own path. That's choice is before us all. We believe and are accepted. We deny it and we are rejected. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come now. Let's stand. Let's sing this song.